You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. Take your Bibles, if you will, turn to 2 Timothy. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 18. We titled our message, Our Famous Last Worship, based on Paul's famous last worship, as you'll see in just a moment. And as you're turning there, would you join me one more time as we commit this time of study to the Lord. So, Father, we come to you right now thanking you for the amazing work of Christ about which we have sung and over which we have worshiped. And Lord, because of his work on the cross, we now have entered into a new covenant with you in which the very spirit uh, that uh, brought forth creation, the very spirit that uh, was in the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament, the very spirit that raised up Christ from the dead now lives in us. Thank you that our hearts are a holy temple of worship before you today. And now, Lord, I'm just so thrilled with the truth that that same spirit inspired the very words that we will read. And now he lives within us to explain to us what he means by what he says and to apply from within us in a conversation with the author himself, the truth of God's word. So Holy Spirit, would you now allow our hearts to be fertile soil upon which the seed of your word will fall and bring forth great fruit? Would you give us the will to obey, the mind to be attentive, and Lord, the obedience to live differently when we leave here today? I pray for me, your servant, you would give me understanding, unction, and utterance, Lord, understanding of what you want to say, unction to say it in your power, and utterance to make it clear to your people, and we pray all this for the sake of the gospel and the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. The year was 1968, four young men from Tanzania traveled to Mexico City for the Summer Olympics. One of those young men, John Stephen Akari, was slated to run in the 42-kilometer marathon. He began the race, a race, a field of 75 athletes. About halfway through the race, there was a pileup, and John Stephen Akari was thrown to the ground. He had a gashed right knee. It was dislocated. His shoulder was severely bruised. He was urged to stop, as actually 18 eventually did, who did not finish the race, but he continued. An hour after the winner crossed the finish line, the stadium had been half empty, it was darkened, and a lone figure came limping into the stadium to finish his final 800 meters. The quarry was not to be deterred, and the cameras lit up, you can actually watch it on YouTube, as he limped his way across the finish line to the applause of the crowd that remained. And later on, the reporters asked him, why didn't you quit like so many did? And his statement has gone down really in Olympic history is one of the most profound that was ever said. He said, my country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. And that's so true for each and every one of us. And I would just remind you, God did not send his son, Jesus Christ, to save you, to fill you with his spirit, to equip you with his word, to call you to a life of significance just so you would start the race but so that you would finish the race. The truth is, God did not put us on this earth to start the race, but to finish it. And today, we're going to look at a passage that I think perhaps more than any other in the New Testament inspires us to finish strong and finish well. 
I had the privilege of serving my final two years in college as a student body president at my university. I don't think anyone else ran, but uh, anyway, um, we would often invite the administration in to kind of cheer us on. And I'll never forget the university president came in and one day said a line I never forgot. She spoke to these aspiring young people. He said, young people, the only performance that counts is the last one. Now, every, every performance counts, but if you don't end well, the rest of it pretty much doesn't matter, right? And often as we finish, there are attached to those final moments famous last words, right? I think of the famous last words of uh, a young man. His family attended a church I pastored in California. This son's name was Todd. He was on United Flight 93, September 11, 2001. He was among the passengers who rushed the cockpit in order to recover the plane from the hijackers. The plane eventually crashed near Shanksville, Pennsylvania. But on a final cell phone call, his famous last words still ring today. And I bet some of you know it. You remember what Todd Beamer said? Let's roll. That's right. Let's roll. I think of Joan of Arc, who as she was being burned at the stake, declared, hold the cross high so that I may see it through the flames. Another early century, century Christian leader, St. Lawrence, was literally being suspended over a bed of coal, slowly burned to death, and he uttered these words, turn me, I am roasted on one side. Almost a sense of humor there, right? But folks came to faith because of his courage. And then there are famous last words that are on the other side of the corn. They're not, they're not so smart. I was reading recently of the famous last words of stupid men. Now, there are none in here, but stupid men, all right? Like this. I've never tried this with a chainsaw before, but what could go wrong? Or this. I, I'm not much of an electrician, but uh, how hard could this be? Zzz, right? Or how about these? Hey, 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 watch this. <laughs> Famous last words. Or how about these? Honey, those pants kind of make you look fat. Famous last words. Uh, <laughs> don't try that at home, right? Today, uh, other than the final words of Jesus on the cross, I believe we're going to look at the most profound last words ever spoken by a spiritual leader as the Apostle Paul communicates his final thoughts. And I want to tie it to the series that Pastor Robbie just finished, if you were here, out of Matthew 25, where he talked about urgency, opportunity, and mercy. Those words exude from the Apostle Paul, perhaps no better than in this letter, I would say in some ways he's the poster child of urgency, opportunity, and mercy. You probably heard the story of little Susie trying to go to sleep one night and a storm rolled in. She cried out for mom. Mom came in, comforted her. She said, Susie, it's okay. Be comforted. Jesus is with you. Second time she cried out, mom came in. Third time she cried out, mom came in. And that third time mom said again, Susie, I told you Jesus is with you. She said, I know Jesus is with me, mom, but I need someone with skin on, right? And Paul really is urgency, opportunity, and mercy with skin on. Paul is, you see this on the screen, he's a profound model of urgency, opportunity, and mercy, and he shows us how we can run this race and how we should finish this race as we look at his famous last worship and we make it our own. Now, in case you haven't heard or, or perhaps haven't yet understood the context of this letter, it was Paul's final letter. He writes it from a place called the Mamertine Prison in Rome. Just a few years prior to this, Nero, the evil emperor, had burned his own city 
had lit Rome on fire in order in part to blame the Christians for the tragedy, to have a reason to begin to persecute them. He would use their tar-dipped bodies as human torches to light the streets. He would clothe them in wild animal skins and feed them to the beasts in the Colosseum. And the Mamertine prison was the lowest of the low where they kept Rome's fiercest enemies. They would often parade them as captors. And they would leave them in this dark, dank dungeon to either starve or to be quietly executed. And yet through all that, the Holy Spirit speaks to Paul to provide for us his final letter to his beloved son, Timothy. So two things. We're going we're gonna to move fairly quickly in verses 5 through 16 and look at his final instructions, his, his final focus words to Timothy. And then in verses 17 and 18, I can't wait to get to it, we're going to talk about his famous last worship and understand how it is that we, having started the race, should finish it. So let's begin by this challenge from Paul as he gives some focus instructions to Timothy to be challenged by these focus last instructions. And first of all, in verse 5, he begins by talking to Timothy about the essence of an enduring life and ministry. Verse 5 is literally Paul's final admonition to Timothy. And so this is a verse, verse worth memorizing. It's one we want to take to heart. Fortunately, it's short, but man, it's punchy. He says, first of all, in, as he speaks of this urgency and opportunity, he talks about finishing strong. He says, but you, Timothy, he's already contextualized the situation. Timothy was pastoring the church at Ephesus where Paul had actually spent three years of his life, more than any other church. And he's eager for Timothy to come, but he's warning him about false teaching and the dangers of the day and Timothy struggling with fear and timidity. You may remember that as he wrote. So he says, you, Timothy, here, here's my final word to you. Be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. If I could describe ministry in one simple sentence, that's it. And he says this, first of all, be sober in all things. In other words, be level-headed, be in complete control of your faculties, your mind, your will, your emotions. I remember three of my mentors, uh, not associated with each other, just independently, told me the same thing repeatedly. Don't let your highs get you too high, and don't let your lows get you too low. He says, Timothy, control yourself. Be sober-minded. One well-known Christian leader says it this way, if I could kick the person most responsible for the majority of my problems, I wouldn't be able to sit down for a week, right? <laughs> no, he said, Timothy, control yourself. Be in charge of all of your faculties. Secondly, he says, endure hardship. That's simple. You know what you do when, you, when you're going through hardship? You endure. That's it. <laughs> There's no th steps to escape or work around it. You just endure. You bear up under it. And literally, this means suffer the evil of the day. Continue to endure by the grace of God. Sometimes we're not too good at that. I remember when I was a young pastor in my 30s, uh, older couples would come to me for marriage counseling. I'm thinking, man, you are scraping the bottom of the bucket there. I mean, I was new in this marriage thing. What do I tell them? And the Lord helps you, of course. But over time, I got pretty exasperated. So I went to a really well-known counselor in our area, wonderful Christian man. I said, Ron, what do I tell these people? And he gave me some thoughts. But at the end, he said something. Now, Daniel, don't forget, the fundamental problem with these couples is that they have no theology of suffering. And so when they hit a marriage trial, they don't know what to do with it. 
And have you learned marriage involves suffering? Anybody? You can be bold, raise your hand, right? Not because of who you're married to, it's because who they're married to, right? I mean, you've got to change. You've got to grow. You've got to give up your rights. There's suffering involved in that. And, and Paul says to Timothy, you've you got to have a theology of suffering here, Timothy. You've just got to endure hardship. There's no such thing as genuine discipleship and faithful ministry that is not costly. And he says, now, do the work of an evangelist. Make it real simple. Keep the main thing the main thing, right? That's the main thing. Stay focused on why you're here. Don't get distracted with lesser things. Don't get uh, sidetracked by small people, menial tasks. Keep doing the work of an evangelist. I often hear people say, well, I don't have the gift of evangelism. I say, well, you don't need a gift. You got a calling, right? We're all supposed to be sharing the good news with people. And he said, Timothy, stay focused on what really matters, on the leading edge of gospel ministry. Have you noticed there's so many things to distract us from that? In fact, I often say it this way, the devil is always launching weapons of mass distraction on us. Wouldn't you agree? And I say it this way, he doesn't have to destroy you. He only has to what? Distract you. And we need to be reminded that we are called to be fishers of men, not keepers of the aquarium. Do the work of an evangelist. And then finally, he summarizes last words of advice to Timothy, fulfill your ministry, bring it to completion, Bottom line, don't quit. He says to Timothy, I've left you behind not to start this race, but to what? To finish it. Then now Paul begins to talk about his own death with some imagery. And this is why he's feeling such urgency. He knows his time is limited. And so in verses 6 through 8, he, he really helps us understand the meaning of our final moments in life. And uh, I, I had a friend who, who died of Lou Gehrig's disease. He says, you know, I'm not a afraid of dying. I just don't like the process of getting there, right? But we're all going to be in that process. Some of you are here today in that process. Some of us in this room a couple weeks from now may not be still alive on this earth. I mean, taxes and death, they're pretty, pretty predictable, aren't they? And so what's it like? Notice what Paul says here. As he's looking at these final moments, he encourages, to, uh, encourages us to exude three things. You see it on the screen. Loving sacrifice, enduring purpose, and eternal reward. Loving sacrifice, enduring purpose, and eternal reward. Let's look at those very briefly. Look at his spirit of loving sacrifice even in death in verse 6. He says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. So drink offering was an act of worship in the Old Testament. They had what they called burnt offerings, the animals that would be sacrificed. They would have a grain offering and a drink offering where wine was poured out on the fire and would create a, aroma, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And, of course, the ultimate drink offering was the blood and life of Christ that was poured out before God on our behalf. But Paul's saying, my death is an act of worship. My very last breath, my very final moments are simply a drink offering before the Lord. And precious in the sight of the Lord, the Bible says, are the death of his saints, right? And so it was an act of worship for him. And then he says, and in these dying moments, I want you to know, I fought the good fight. There's this sense of eternal purpose. I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. See, he viewed life as a battle to fight. He, he viewed it as a race to run and as a faith to keep. I'm reminded, again, that this is an agonizing battle, but it's the only battle that really matters, isn't it? 
We've got a few battles going on south of the border here right now, right? Uh, there'll be some battles going on in sports arenas all around the country today. But friends, the only battle that matters is the battle for the kingdom of God. And Paul said, I have agonized in the good fight. I have run this marathon. It's not a sprint. And, and I have held to the faith once and for all delivered the good news of the gospel of Christ. And then notice he says, and there's a reward, verse 8. It's worth it. Because in the future, there's laid up for me, that word laid up literally means it's sure, it's guarded, it's safe. The Lord is not going to change his mind on your reward. I remember hearing the story about a guy who got new hearing aids. And they worked beautifully. And a month later, went back to the doctor. The doctor said, how are your hearing aids working? He said, they're working great, doc. And the doc said, your family must be thrilled. He said, well, actually, I haven't told them I have new hearing aids, but I have changed my will three times in the last month, right? The Lord is not going to change his will on you. This reward is laid up for you based upon who he is. Why? Because he's a righteous judge, Paul says. He always does what's right. And as he empowers you to live a righteous life, you then receive what they called in the Olympic Games of his day, the laurel wreath, the wreath of victory for military victors, athletic champions, etc. And who's this for? Who's this reward for? People who love his appearing. You know, I mean, I know we all have things we love in this life, but Lord, may it be that we love your appearing. On the heels of this series, Robbie just finished, oh, may we love your appearing, the fact that you're coming again, Lord. And, and you know, sometimes we fall in love with Facebook likes and Twitter followers and fame and fortune and popularity, success in ministry, but I want to tell you, it's so worth it to love his appearing. You know why? Because the only scoreboard that counts is the one in heaven. That's the only scoreboard that matters. And I don't know about you, but I get tired of comparing myself sometimes, feeling inferior, feeling proud, you know, uh, gauging life by superficial standards. But I want you to know right now, there's a judge who has laid up for you a crown of righteousness, and we must love his appearing because the scoreboard in heaven is perfect. The scorekeeper is righteous. He never misses a call. He never forgets a score. I love it. Then Paul, verse 9 through 15, as we're moving toward the culmination of his worship here, he talks about the reward and risk of relationships. And I've always wondered, in fact, it kind of hit me this weekend, why did he suddenly divert in the midst of all this glorious teaching and final admonitions and pictures of his death, suddenly he starts clicking off people's names? Why is that? Well, because multiple times Paul described people as his joy and reward. And Paul knew he wasn't going to heaven alone. Uh, uh, pastors often joke sarcastically, you know, the ministry would be great if it weren't for people, right? Not you, people in those other churches, all right? The ministry would be great if it weren't for people. But the fact is, the ministry wouldn't exist if it weren't for people. And Paul's telling Timothy now, and we're not going to go through all the names, but just in summary, he says, Timothy, come quickly and, and bring Mark. And, and I left some stuff. He must be absent-minded like me. I left some stuff over here. Bring me the cloak and the parchments. And, and by the way, here's a team update. Demas bombed out, and these guys, Luke's with me. And, and kind of here's, here's what's going on with our team. Paul never did ministry alone. He always did it with people. And right now, actually, he's a little lonely. Luke is with him, his doctor, but he's missing Timothy, and he's hoping he'll get there in time. But I want you to notice two thoughts in particular. Move ahead, if you will, if you've got your Bible open there, to what he says in verse 14 about a guy named Alexander. He says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. Now, Alexander's a very common name, like Joe, Bill, whatever. 
But we believe he was an idol maker who lived in Rome. Made idols out of copper. That meant Paul was not his favorite person because the gospel was decimating his business, right? People were turning from idols to the living God. And he says, Timothy, watch out for this guy. He did me much harm. He came after me big time, aggressively, trying to inflict pain and hurt. And then notice what he says in verse 16. He says, and also at my first defense in this incarceration... He had two defenses. He had one initially between the, before the emperor's court, and he's going to have another one, which will be the last, and then he'll lose his head. <laughs> and he said, my first defense, catch this, friends, no one supported me. Did you catch that? No one. Are you kidding me, Paul? All these people you ministered to, all these churches you planted, all these folks who came to Christ, and, and you need, at this moment, when you need them the most, no one is there. In fact, it's not that they forgot the appointment. I'll tell you what it is, read on. They all deserted me. They literally deserted me. I'm there all by myself after investing my life in these people. Now, I want you to notice two things. Back in verses 14 and 15 about Alexander, did you notice what Paul said? He said, the Lord will repay him. And then concerning all those believers who basically thinked out on him, he said, may it not be held against them. I want to tell you one of the worst conditions in which to die is to die with a heart filled with retaliation and resentment. And Paul's such a model of why he was so free to worship in these final moments. He had learned that great Disney hymn, let it go, let it go, right? I mean, he let it go. He said the Lord will judge him. It may not be held against him. So many people are so defeated in their worship in their life by hanging on to the pain that unbelievers have inflicted on them instead of knowing God will take care of that. And some of you are sitting right now, your spouse, a friend, a fellow believer, someone at work has, has deserted you, rejected you, has let you down. And we are wise to learn from Paul. May not be held against him. I have a friend named Lee who lives in Calgary. Lee recounted an amazing story to me, and we'll call his friend Joe. His friend Joe was kind of notable for being cranky and grumpy and always upset with somebody. And one day Joe was out in the, the uh, kind of the wilderness, I think he was hiking in that region there in Alberta, and he literally saw an eagle come down not far from him, grab a weasel, pick it up as it's captive, fly back into the air, and then about a minute later, both the eagle and the weasel fell quickly to the ground. Joe thought that was so strange. He went to find the place where they landed and he discovered it and sure enough there was the dead eagle and the dead weasel and from best he could tell what happened the weasel being captive took his claws and ripped the chest of the eagle wide open that they both fell to their death and Joe said to my buddy Lee he said stupid eagle why didn't he just let go of the weasel and Lee wisely and lovingly said you know Joe you're the eagle you need to let go of your weasel you see some of us are hanging on to things that are going to kill us. And Paul easily in these final moments, I mean, in this dungeon, having been disgraced, living in dank, dark isolation, could easily start, begin to wallow in self-pity and fear and doubt and resentment and all of those things. But instead he says, for my opponents, the Lord will judge them. And for my friends who let me down, may it not be held against them. Wow, what a way to end. 
But now we get to the good stuff. That's good already, all right? But I, I think it's better. So let's pick up now really the second thought here, verse 17 and 18, and that is we should be inspired by Paul's famous last worship. So the backdrop of all the persecution going on, he's in prison, he's writing to Timothy, he's giving Timothy a final encouragement, he's got an imagery of his death that was really an act of worship, and he's thinking about the people in his life. And then in verse 17, he picks up with what I call famous last worship. And before we jump into it, let me just say this. You know, sometimes, and you see this on the screen, our most powerful worship arises from our deepest trials. Why? Because God gives us grace to embrace the things that matter most in this life. And I'm guessing some of you came in here today in a very dark place. You're facing circumstances you can't make sense of. You're struggling with pain that's just defeating you. But if you will allow God's grace to come into that moment, it will produce incredible worship. And you're going to see now that it does that in Paul. That in spite of it all and in the midst of it all, here's what he says. As he finishes well, as he finishes the race, first of all, he has a recognition of the faithfulness of God. Look at verse 17. I love this verse. He says, but in contrast to all this, all that's going on, the reality of my death, these people, he says, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. Wow. Aren't you grateful? that no matter what happens, the Lord stands with us and he strengthens us. In his final words to his disciples, he says, Lo, I am with you always. And the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 13, 5 said that Jesus says to us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Paul understood this strength. I want you to see a few verses that just, again, remind us of how he understood that. In Philippians 4, 13, you know this verse well. I can do what? All things through Christ who does what? Who strengthens me. He wrote to Timothy in his first letter to his beloved understudy and disciple as he spoke of the strength of God. He said, I thank him who has given me strength. Who? Christ Jesus our Lord. And then earlier in this very letter, he said, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus I always describe grace as God doing for us, in us, and through us what only he can do through the power and person of Jesus Christ, right? And one of the little slogans that will be on my tombstone, I got a really big tombstone planned here, but is this, God has tailored made grace for everything we face. Would you say that with me? God has tailored made grace for everything we face. I've been in the hospital a few times, some of you may have as well. First thing you do, they hook up an IV. You know Why? Because that becomes a rapid delivery system of whatever you need in the moment. It may be pain meds, it may be antibiotics, maybe some kind of nourishment, fluids, whatever. When you came to Christ, here's my analogy, the Lord hooked up to your heart a heavenly IV. And anything you are involved in, God has a unique formula of grace he's going to pour into your life. He has given you saving grace to make you a child of God. He has given you uh, grace to make you holy, grace to endure trials, grace to parent those, those crazy memes in your house, uh, grace to, to love your spouse, grace to endure hardships. And this first came to my mind when I thought about martyrdom. And I thought about how could I ever be a martyr for Jesus? Burned at the stake like Joan of Arc or roasting over a fire or before a firing squad. How can, I can't do that. And then I was reminded, oh, no. But in that very moment, God will give you martyr's grace. 
You can't take three pills for martyrs, you know, three days ahead. In the moment, God gives you what you need. And Paul is saying that God has given me, as I have gone through these, all that I needed, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. Aren't you grateful? So let's take a survey today. How many of you, somewhere along the way, you think the Lord has stood with you and strengthened you? Let's see your hands. Anybody? All right, the rest of you, this is your day of salvation, all right? You can come to Christ, and you'll have that wonderful experience. The Lord stands with us and strengthens us, all right? Now, here's another exercise. Think of just one highlight, one, one moment, maybe early in your journey, maybe this week, maybe in your parenting, your work, one time when the Lord stood with you and strengthened you. You got it in your head? Locked and loaded, as we say? All right, now, here's an idea. I know you're supposed to just sit here like totem poles watching me, but... I want you to turn to someone next to you. Just tell them when that was. Encourage one another. When has the Lord stood to you? You mean I actually got to talk to somebody? I know, it's a crazy idea. But, but just tell them. When has the Lord stood with you? Tell somebody. The Lord stood with me and strengthened me when? Tell them. Tell them right now. Just encourage them with what the Lord did to stand with you and strengthen you. I'm watching. All right, go for it. Really, seriously. Tell someone. When was it? What a blessing. See, we can minister to each other, can't we? Because I'll tell you what, the Lord stands with us and strengthens us. And I said this humorously, but in all seriousness, if you're here today and you have never met Christ, you're on a journey that's lonely and isolated and powerless, today may be your day of salvation. And the Lord Jesus wants to come to you, forgive you of your sin, bring you to repentance of all the things that have kept you far from God, and he wants to become a friend that sits closer to the brother. And even when everyone deserts you and people come against you, I make you a promise the Lord will stand with you and strengthen you. Amen? Such a good word. So he says, I recognize God's faithfulness. Secondly, he said, there's this reaffirmation of our mission in life as we are coming to these final moments to finish strong. Pick up in verse 17, he says, so that, that by the way is a purpose phrase. The Lord stood with me and strengthened me for a reason. And here's the reason, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and all the Gentiles might hear. Wow. You see, God doesn't, Stand with you and strengthen you just so you can feel better about yourself, although that happens sometimes. We feel better, we're comforted, we're encouraged. He doesn't stand with you and strengthen you so you wear a badge, you know, Jesus is with me, that's all fine and good. He stands with you and strengthens you so that the message of the gospel can be fully accomplished through you. And notice what Paul says, that all the Gentiles might hear. You see... We're on mission, aren't we? Again, we see that in Paul, he told that to Timothy. Now he's, he's saying it's still true with me. Now, sometimes I've run into Christians who think that the Christian life, and I've said this over the years, is a cruise ship to heaven, right? I got saved and I joined the MSS Harvest. And isn't it wonderful? Pastor Robbie's the captain of the ship, you know, and, and the staff, they come down and they fold down my blanket and put a chocolate on my pillow at night. They make sure the music's to my liking and all the rooms on my little cruise ship here. Uh, the reality is there's a Greek word for that. It's hogwash. That's the Greek word, all right? <laughs> you see, we are on a search and rescue battleship. The captain is Jesus. We're all the crew. And Paul, here's what astounds me. Paul, this is it. Man, the next appearance is his final execution. And he's still dreaming that all the Gentiles might hear. 
Say, man, that dude, he is an optimist. He sure was because he knew something about the power of the gospel. And in his last defense, he knew that maybe Caesar, maybe one of the court leaders, maybe a jailkeeper, but someone's going to hear about Jesus in my final breath. And I believe that could even lead to all the Gentiles might hearing. Wow. May we have that kind of faith about the power of the gospel. And I say this, and I want you to see it, that every act of ministry Every time we declare the gospel, there is a ripple effect. Say that with me, a ripple effect. Paul said earlier in this verse, said, I'm like a criminal in chains, but the word of God is not bound. It's powerful. Story I heard about a couple named Jim and Helen. One Saturday night, a pastor's wife named Georgetta, that's the number one girl's baby name in Toronto right now, No, it's really not. Anyway, Georgetta came, and she was selling cosmetics and had a conversation with Jim and Helen that night about the gospel, and the stories told that they really needed it. Helen had been married five times, twice to Jim now, once earlier and once in that moment. They had struggled with alcoholism, violence, and abuse in their marriage. The oldest son, 15, was from another husband. The second son was from Jim the first time who was 11, the third son was one uh, from Jim this last time. They needed Jesus. Because Georgetta knew of the ripple effect of the gospel, she continued to pray and love them. A few weeks later, they went to church. Jim, Helen, and the older brothers all came to Christ. But the story continues. Less than a year later, the middle son turned 12 and felt called to preach at 12 years old. So the story's told is every Sunday they would go around the neighborhood and recruit all the neighbor kids, and the grandma would set up chairs in the garage. The mother, Helen, would lead worship. She went from whatever she was to a worship leader now. And the, and the little 11-year-old son would preach the same sermon he heard that morning. Uh, the story's told he'd raise his arms at the same time and use the real, same illustrations. He went on to become a youth pastor and literally lead thousands of young people to Christ. That middle son eventually taught at a major Christian university, youth ministry, trained hundreds and hundreds of youth pastors. He eventually became a senior pastor of significant churches, strong missions impact around the world. The one-year-old came to Christ under the preaching of the middle son. He too became a pastor. He wound up pastoring a number of mega churches and leading a, a national, really in a sense, a global ministry to pastors. And the story reminds us that Georgetta caused a ripple effect, didn't she? Into thousands of lives because she shared the gospel that Saturday night. Now, this story that I heard hits close to home because it's actually my home. Jim and Helen were my mom and dad. And I was that little one-year-old who came to Christ under the preaching of a brother. Friends, be faithful. Share the gospel. If Paul could have that resolve in this dungeon prior to his death, so can you in the midst of your life. So that me, through me, the proclamation might be fully accomplished and all the Gentiles might hear. Think of another story of a guy named Edward Kimball. He taught a Sunday school class of boys. They were quite cantankerous. And there was one kid who was a hard case. He eventually tracked the kid down at the shoe store where he worked and got him in the back stock room and shared the gospel with him. That young man trusted Christ that day. His name was Dwight L. Moody. Under Moody, another man came to Christ named Wilbur Chapman, who also became an evangelist. Under Wilbur Chapman, one day, a professional baseball player came, heard the gospel, left baseball, became an evangelist. His name was Billy Sunday. 
under Billy Sunday, another man named Mordecai Ham came to Christ. He became an evangelist and one day came to North Carolina to do a crusade. And there was a young man who lived there. They were trying to persuade him to go here. He didn't want to go. The first night he went, wasn't sure about it. Second night he went, he got saved. That young man's name was Billy Graham. You see, from prison, Paul reminds us that we, till our very last breath, can engage in in worship of Christ who stands with us and strengthens us, and he does it so that all the Gentiles might hear through our witness. Then Paul goes on, and we're going to end with a bang here, so hang on, all right? Now he exhibits a reassurance of the Lord's power and protection. Look at verse 17 now. The last part of that verse, he said, And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. Now he might be referring to Nero. He might be thinking of Daniel in the lion's den. Certainly thinking of the enemy of his soul who, like a roaring lion, roams Satan himself and seeks whom he may devour. He says, I, I, I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord has been faithful to me. But here's his assurance. He says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. Now, that's not death or persecution or suffering because we know we're going to go through that. That is the enemy's attempts to destroy our faith, to somehow stop our witness, to somehow discourage our soul. And Paul says, I know this, that the Lord will deliver me from every evil deed. And the last line of that model prayer, Lord, lead us not into, you know that one, temptation, but deliver us from evil. So we're going to pause and we're going to pray about this just for a moment. I'm guessing that some of you have noticed that evil is still in the world. Has anybody observed that? Some of you notice evil still in your world. And I'm guessing there's some of you who today feel a unique press of the enemy against your soul, against your faith, against your family, against your efforts to minister. He is a roaring lion. And he is out to in any way diminish the name of Christ and discourage the people of God. But I want you to know today that the same thing Paul declared, we can declare that he will deliver us from every evil deed. So if today you're here and you would be willing and honest, as people have done all across the auditorium previous service, to say, you know, I sense the enemy's got me in his crosshairs. He's got my family in his crosshairs. And I just need that reassurance that he's going to deliver me from every evil deed. Would you just stand right now? You don't have to say anything. We just want to pray for you. Say, yeah, I'm facing evil today. Maybe this crowd, you, the devil is leaving you alone. But I guess in, uh, in some way that's happening. So just stand right now. We're just going to pray for you. Say, yeah, I sense it. The enemy is coming against me. It's real. It's palpable. I need the Lord's help right now as the enemy is unleashing some of his most devious attacks against my soul, my family, my work. Friends, the Lord is with you. Amen. See these standing around you? Now, if you're not standing, you get to jump in too, all right? You see these standing? If you're near one of them, would you stand with them? Put a hand on their shoulder. You don't have to say anything. I just want you to to let them know we're here together. And friends, if we can't do this in church, where can we do it, right? We are in a spiritual battle. We need to stand together. We need to pray for each other. And Paul says, I was rescued from the lion's mouth, and I know the Lord will deliver me from every evil deed. So would you join me? Let's pray for each other right now. Father, we come to you in the mighty name of Jesus. We thank you that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And Lord, uh, 
If we weren't doing something right, the enemy would probably leave us alone. But I believe these standing have a sincere desire to live for Jesus, to be ambassadors of the gospel, to be the best spouse or parent, grandparent, employee that they know how to be, but the enemy hates the people of God who take their faith seriously. But Lord, I thank you for your love for us. I thank you that right now you are standing with and strengthening our brothers and sisters. I thank you, Lord, that you will deliver them from every evil deed that comes against their faith, that diminishes their hope, that undermines their confidence, that seeks to distract them from your sufficiency. And so right now, in agreement as the people of God, we commit our brothers and sisters to you, Lord. And may they leave this place with new confidence in the power of the resurrected Christ to preserve, to keep, to strengthen, to give them the power through his grace to prevail in the battle. And so, Lord, in your mighty name and with great hope and our eyes on you, we commend them to your care and to your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now remain standing just for a final moment. I just totally messed up your note-keeping. You can't sit down and write this down, but you can remember this point. I love the way Paul ends his final thoughts about the Lord and about his Christian life are about heaven. It's a resolve toward the promise of heaven. Notice verse 18b, he says, and he will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Wow. Heaven on his mind. Paul has said in 2 Corinthians, we're of good courage. We'd rather be away from the body and home with the Lord. One final story I would just share with you, a missionary named Henry C. Morrison spent 40 years in Africa with his wife, and uh, their term had finished up. They were on a ship many years ago on their way back to New York, and as they sailed, he wondered, honey, will anyone be there to welcome us home? After these 40 years, I, I can't wait to see the familiar faces and the joy of being back. And as they pulled into New York Harbor, sure enough, there were signs and banners and bands that said, welcome home, welcome home. And he was so excited, only to realize that unbeknownst to him, the president of the United States at the time, Theodore Roosevelt, was on the same ship coming home from an African safari. And by the time he and his wife got off the ship, everyone had left. That night in the hotel, obviously downcast, he said, honey, it's just not fair. You know, president, come back from a safari. We've served the Lord for 40 years, and no one's here to welcome us home. His wife lovingly, wisely put her arm around his shoulder, and she said, oh, Henry, you've forgotten something. We're not home yet. But someday, friends, you will be home. And the Lord, the righteous judge, will reward you with a reward laid up in heaven as we love his appearing, as we know that the Lord will stand with us and strengthen us, and he will deliver us from every evil deed. And I love this. He will bring us safely to his heavenly kingdom. Amen? I love that movie, the song, I Can Only Imagine, that just causes us to think biblically about all the joy and the glories of heaven. And we're going to end with a holy rejoicing together about the fact that he's going to bring us safely to his heavenly shore, friends. I don't know if I'll be back here at Harvest, but I will see you again, as we always say here, there, in the air. Amen. 
So we're going to imagine what it will be like when he brings us safely to his heavenly kingdom. Now, I know you get excited about your teams around here, the Blue Jays. Maybe a few of you are excited about the Argonauts. Uh, all of you hopefully excited about the Maple Leafs. But, but more than all that put together is our excitement about heaven. Amen. And here's actually what Paul said. He will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Would you say that with me? To him be the glory forever and ever. So we're going to close, and I'm going to remind you what that day is going to be like when we get to his heavenly kingdom. And I'll point to you, and I want you to say it. More important than uh, the Blue Jays or, or any of your teams, I want you to declare to him be the glory forever and ever. You ready? All right, here we go. So, Lord, I thank you that when you bring us safely to your heavenly kingdom, we will see our Savior face to face. Amen. You almost sound like you mean it, all right? Thank you that when you bring us to your heavenly kingdom, there will be no more pain, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more death. Forever and ever. Thank you that our questions will be resolved, our doubts will be dispelled, our faith will become sight. To him... Thank you that you, when you bring us safely to your heavenly kingdom, we will receive the reward of a faithful life that was lived for your glory. To him. And we will fellowship forever with all the saints of all the ages. And we will be united with fellow believers and loved ones who have faithfully followed you and gone before us. To him. And we will join our voices with the voices of myriads and thousands of angels. And finally, Lord, when you bring us safely to your heavenly kingdom, we will know that a life of opportunity, urgency, and mercy has been worth it. To him be the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen, amen, amen.